Okay, so I, I think it's broadly agreed these days that consciousness poses a very serious challenge for contemporary science. So what I'm trying to work out at the moment is why exactly science has such, such difficulty with consciousness. And I think we can trace this problem back to its root at the, at the start of the scientific revolution and the kind of philosophical underpinnings of the scientific revolution. So a cr crucial moment in the scientific revolution is when Galileo declares that mathematics is to be the language of the new science. So the new science is to have a purely quantitative vocabulary. So this is a much discussed moment. But what is less reflected on are the, is the philosophical work Galileo had to do to get to that point. So before Galileo, people thought the physical world was full of qualities. There's the colors on the surfaces of objects, tastes in food, smells floating through the air. And the trouble was, you can't capture these kind of qualities in the purely quantitative vocabulary of mathematics. Right? You can't capture the redness of a red experience or the spiciness of paprika in an equation. So this was a, a challenge for Galileo's aspiration to completely describe the physical world in mathematics. So Galileo's solution to this was to propose a radically new philosophical theory of reality. And according to this theory, the qualities aren't really out there in the physical world, rather they're in the soul, which Galileo took to be outside of the domain of science. So, so the redness isn't really on the surface of the tomato, it's rather in the soul of the person perceiving the tomato, or the, the spiciness of the paprika isn't really in the paprika, it's rather in the soul of the person eating it. So Galileo, as it were, stripped the physical world of its qualities, and after he'd done that, all that, were, all that remained were the purely quantitative features of matter, size, shape, location, motion, things that can be captured in a purely mathematical vocabulary, in mathematical geometry. So this is the start of mathematical physics. But it's crucial to realize that in Galileo's worldview, there's this radical division between the physical world with its purely quantitative properties, that's the domain of science, and the soul with its qualities, which is outside of the domain of science. So mathematical physics has obviously gone very well, but the problem is you can't deal with consciousness if you're not going to deal with qualities, because conscious experience is essentially defined by the qualities that characterize every second of waking life, the colors and smells and sounds and tastes. So effectively, by, by excluding qualities from the domain of science, Galileo excluded consciousness from the domain of science. So and to be fair to Galileo, he was completely clear about this. He only ever intended physical science as a partial description of reality. I think if, if Galileo were to time travel to the present day and hear about this problem of explaining consciousness in physical science terms, he'd say, of course you can't do that. I designed physical science to deal with quantities, not qualities. Um, and you know, I, I now think, I think we're now going for a phase of history where people are so blown away at the success of physical science and the wonderful technology it's produced, 
that they've forgotten its philosophical underpinnings, they've forgotten its inherent limitations. So I think if we really want a science of consciousness, we need to move beyond Galileo. We need to move to what I call a post-Galilean paradigm. We need to really rethink what science is. Now that doesn't mean we stop doing physical science or we do physical science differently. I'm not here to tell physical scientists how to do their job. But it does mean, I think, that it's not the full story. I think we need to encompass physical science in a more expansive conception of the scientific method. We need to adopt a worldview that can accommodate both the quantitative features of physical science, the quantitative data of physical science, and the qualitative reality of consciousness. So that's essentially the problem. But fortunately, I think there is a way forward. There is a framework which could allow us to make progress on this. And it's inspired by uh, certain writings from the 1920s of the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the scientist Arthur Eddington, who's incidentally the first scientist to confirm general relativity after the First World War. So I'm inclined to think these guys did in the 1920s for the science of consciousness what Darwin did in the 19th century for the science of life. And I think it's a kind of tragedy of history that this was completely forgotten about for a long time, various historical reasons we could talk about. But it's recently been rediscovered in the last five or ten years in academic philosophy, and it's causing a lot of excitement and interest. The two dominant positions on consciousness, you could think, on the one hand, people who think, oh, it's so magical and mysterious, we're never going to be able to give a scientific account of it. And in a way, that's Nick Humphrey's position because he wants to say in some sense it's an illusion. We can't, you know, give a scientific account of it. But it's also the view of the, uh, the dualist who thinks, look, it's just outside of the domain of science. I was interviewed recently by a sort of very radical dualist. So I'm usually prepared to sort of defend that my view is scientific. But this guy was saying, why are you bothering with science? We all know science is a load of, you know, rubbish. Um, so that's on one hand, you know, it's so magical and mysterious, we'll never give a scientific kind of it. The other view is, well, we just need to keep doing neuroscience in standard ways. Look, there, is a, there is a problem here. We just need to keep up with our standard ways investigating the brain and we'll eventually crack it. So my view is kind of in the middle. I think we can have confidence uh, that we can one day, we can have hope at least that we'll one day give a science of consciousness, but I think we need to rethink what science is because I, d I don't think science was ever designed, physical science would have, was ever designed to deal with consciousness. It was designed to give mathematical models that can accurately predict the behavior of matter. And that's gone really well, but it was never designed to deal with the subjective qualities of consciousness. You know, Russell is a really famous philosopher, you know, um, but people know about his logical linguistic work, they know about his pacifism. This has sort of been almost completely airbrushed out of history. This, so it's his views from um, the analysis of matter in 1927. And then Eddington followed it up in his Gifford lectures, the, the, the same year, I think, of publication. Um, so it's a, a wonderful interaction between science and philosophy there. Um, so the starting point of Russell and Eddington is that Physical science tells you a lot less than you think about the nature of matter. So in the public mind, physics is on its way to giving us this complete story of the nature of space and time and matter. Um, 
But what Eddington and Russell realized is that it becomes apparent on reflection that actually physical science is confined to telling you about the behavior of matter, about what it does. So if you think about you know, what physics tells us about an electron, you know, an electron has, for example, mass and negative charge. What is mass? Physics tells us that things with mass attract other things with mass and resist acceleration. The more mass they have, the more they resist acceleration. What is negative charge? Things with negative charge attract things with positive charge and repel other things with negative charge. So this all concerns the behavior of the electron, what it does. Uh, physics is confined to telling us about the behavior. And I think we find a, a similar story in the higher level sciences of chemistry and neurophysiology. So as a whole, physical science tells us about behavior. Now this is incredibly useful information. If you, if you have rich information about the behavior of matter, then you can manipulate the physical world in all sorts of extraordinary ways, yielding the, you know, the incredible technology that's transformed our planet. But if you're only focused on behavior of, say, an electron, then you can only talk about the relationships the electron bears to other particles or fields. You can't say anything about what philosophers like to call the intrinsic nature of the electron, how the electron is in and of itself. So to try and make the intuitive point, contrast an electron with a chess piece. You know, you, what, what might you want to know about a chess piece? You might want to know what it does. You know, if it's a king, it moves one space in any direction. But you might also want to know what it's like in and of itself. Is it made of wood or plastic? What is its intrinsic nature independently of its behavior? Similarly with electron, you might be very interested to know what physicists have to say about the behavior of the electron. But you might also want to know what the electron is in and of itself. What is its intrinsic nature independent of its behavior? So it turns out there's actually this huge hole in the center of our scientific worldview. Physics and physical science more generally tells us lots of stuff about the behavior of matter, but it's completely silent on its intrinsic nature. So what does this have to do with consciousness? Um, so I think the genius of Russell and Eddington was to bring together two problems that on the face of it have nothing to do with each other. The problem of consciousness and the problem of intrinsic natures. So the problem of consciousness is this challenge of finding a place for consciousness in our scientific worldview. Uh, the problem of intrinsic natures is that we have this huge hole in our scientific worldview. So the solution is put consciousness in the hole. So, you know, we're looking for a place for consciousness. Uh, we've got this huge hole. Why not put consciousness in the hole? So the resulting theory is uh, there's just matter. This is not dualism. There's nothing spiritual or supernatural. But matter can be described from two perspectives. So physical science describes matter, as it were, from the outside in terms of its behavior. But from the inside, in terms of its intrinsic nature, matter is constituted of forms of consciousness. So, so this is a form of panpsychism, the, uh, the ancient view that consciousness is a fundamental and ubiquitous feature of matter. Um, and this has kind of new-agey connotations that some people 
feel a bit uncomfortable with. Um, but, you know, I think we should judge a view not by its cultural associations, but by its explanatory power. And, and, and what this Russell Eddington panpsychism offers us is a way of integrating consciousness into our scientific worldview. You know, we know that consciousness exists. Nothing is more evident than the reality of our feelings and experiences. So we have to fit it into the scientific story somehow. Uh, the Russell Eddington panpsychist view offers us a beautifully simple, elegant, unified way of integrating consciousness into our scientific worldview in, and in a way that, unlike, say, dualism, is completely consistent with everything we know about the brain scientifically. Uh, so apart from it feeling a bit funny, I think this is, a, this is a wonderful way of bringing consciousness into science. But of course, you know, it's, it's just a first step and um, this is not... Russell Eddington panpsychism is not a final theory of consciousness. It's, it's a framework for making theoretical progress, just as Darwin's principle of natural selection was a framework for making theoretical progress, and then you take a century to get to DNA. So I think this is a, this is a, a theory of, um, in which we can make progress, and it's going to take decades or centuries of interdisciplinary labor to try and fill in some of those details. So that's what I'm, you know, I'd really like to try to get this out to a broader audience, to scientists as well as, it's getting more known in philosophy, but it's still pretty much no, unknown outside the ivory tower of academic philosophy. So I want to get the idea out there more generally so we can work on it as a scientific community. You need, philosophy, philosophy is, is crucial when, maybe when the science is not fully formed or when we haven't worked out how to make the problem tractable. You know, I mean, I think it's at this stage of a science of consciousness, at least, I think it's really important to distinguish the, the more empirical observational aspects of a science of consciousness and the more theoretical philosophical aspects of a science of consciousness. Uh, you know, so just focusing on the, on the empirical aspect, you know, neuroscience is absolutely crucial for a science of consciousness. But in my view, you can't get a science of consciousness just by doing neuroscience. You know, what neuroscience essentially gives you are correlations. You know, you can scan people's brains and ask them what they're feeling and experiencing, and you can discover that, you know, um, the feeling of hunger is correlated with a certain kind of activity in the hypothalamus. Uh, and, you know, or you can think that, uh, like Giulio Tononi proposing that... Um, Consciousness in general is correlated with maximal integrated information. So, you know, this is what neuroscience gives us, these one, this wonderful body of correlations. But that in itself isn't a science of consciousness because we then want to know why those correlations obtain. You know, why is it that when you have this activity in the hypothalamus, you get a feeling of hunger? Why should that be? Uh, and that's where you get to the more theoretical aspect. And... You know, so as soon as you start explaining, the, trying to explain those correlations, I think you're moving beyond what can be in any straightforward sense settled empirically. You're really essentially doing philosophy. And I think that's true whether, you know, whether you're a materialist or a dualist or a panpsychist. So, you know, I mean, so some people think, oh, you, you know, the materialists are just doing neuroscience and, you know, make progress, we'll solve the problem that way. You know, I, I just think you can't just get a science of consciousness just by doing neuroscience. Neuroscience is an absolutely crucial preliminary to a theory of consciousness. 
Um, so, so I think, so, so how, do we, how do we do the more theoretical aspect? You know, so it's not like, so some people think the materialists are just doing the neuroscience. The philosophers are doing all this other weird stuff, panpsychism or dualism. But I think, no, you know, whether you're a, if you're a materialist, you get your correlations. But then you've got a big theoretical, philosophical problem. How do you bridge the gap from the purely quantitative properties of neuroscience to the qualities of consciousness? And, you know, I think no one's ever, ever found a way of making any progress, in my view, on bridging that gap. And it's, you know, it's not a gap you can just do more neuroscience to solve. You've got to do some philosophy. Um, you know, and I think the truth is every theory of consciousness has these deep theoretical problems at its core that we really need to do some philosophy to try and solve. And, um, and that's true for the materialist as much as anyone else. And to my mind, the, 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 the problems panpsychism faces just look to be more tractable than the problems materialism faces. I mean, I think you compare it to physics. We're, you know, we're, well, we're used in physics to distinguishing between empirical observational physicists and theoretical physicists who sit in armchairs and uh, draw on blackboards and we see that both have a role. But sometimes for some reason, and you know, like in quantum mechanics, for example, you know, the, we've got the, uh, you know, the equations that are very well empirically confirmed, but then no one knows what the hell they imply about reality. And so we've got a more theoretical task of trying to assess these different speculative models of um, of quantum mechanics. For some reason, when it comes to consciousness, a lot of people think that oh, we should just be doing neuroscience. There's no room for anything more theoretical. Uh, but to my mind, I mean, there really is, because if we ever want to move beyond the correlations that neuroscience gives us, we'd better sit in an armchair and do some theorizing. And that's what philosophers are good at. To my mind, I mean, sorry, I think we've, we, there's been a lot of change in the last 40 years. As you said, you know, consciousness used to be a taboo topic that you couldn't do serious science on. Uh, it's now accepted that, broadly accepted, yeah, there's a problem here we need to, we need to address. But so, so I, I think the next stage is we need to think of consciousness as a datum in its own right. Consciousness as we're immediately aware of it. You know, so I think if we one day have, people talk about the, you know, the grand unified theory that physics is aiming for. If we one day have a theory that can account for all the data of observation and experiments, but it can't account for consciousness, then it can't be true because it's missed something out. It's incomplete. Um, so that, that's kind of my view. But I just, just, on, I just on, I want to add something, if I may, on Dennett. So what I admire about Dennett is he understands this and he just denies it as a datum. Right? And that's completely consistent. That's fine. Humphreys as well. I think there's three categories of people, really. There's, you can think of me and Chalmers at one end, you know, think that, you know, it is a real datum. It's, it's, it's in some sense extra to empirical data. So we've got, you know, the empirical data of third person observation experiment. And we've got this other thing to account for, consciousness that we're immediately aware of. And so we need to rethink science. We need to expand science. So that's one view. Dennett is at the other extreme says, no, you know, we need to account for the behavior and the empirical observable facts of the mind, but there's no extra datum. And that's consistent as well. But I would say actually most people are in the middle and they say, yeah, we do need to give a theory of consciousness, 
but we just need to carry on doing neuroscience and it'll happen. I think that middle position doesn't really make any sense because, you know, if, if you think there is this extra datum, uh, then you're going to end up with correlations from doing neuroscience and you need to somehow explain those correlations. Uh, I mean, another way of putting it is consciousness is, is unobservable. You know, you can't look inside someone's head and see their feelings and experiences. Um, now, you know, science deals with unobservable things, but it postulates unobservable things in order to explain things we can observe. The unique thing about consciousness is the thing we're trying to explain is unobservable. So that's one way of seeing this is a, this is a, this is a, ra a radically new approach to science is called for when the datum we're trying to account for is itself unobservable. No, I, think I think one really underexplored question in the science of consciousness is the relationship between thought and consciousness. Um, and you can see this actually because the dominant theories of um, thought from the 20th century by, you know, Donald Davidson or Jerry Fodor have absolutely nothing to say about consciousness. So you can see there that people thought you could give a theory of thought or what's more broadly called intentionality, which just means mental representation without mentioning consciousness at all. And you see someone like, for example, Andy Clark, you know, he's done really interesting stuff on, uh, you know, mental representation, what we call content, um, without discussing consciousness. So I, I heard um, Clark, Andy Clark once said to me, just, just deal with content and consciousness will look after itself. It's a nice line. So, um, so you know, I kind of call this view separatism, that, uh, that um, you know, thought and consciousness are kind of completely different kind of things, really, and we can deal with thought without thinking about consciousness at all. But there's now a growing minority of philosophers, I happen to be amongst them, who think actually thought is a kind of consciousness. So these are people who believe in um, cognitive consciousness, or often called cognitive phenomenology, so phenomenology just being a synonym for consciousness. Um, so these people think that, uh, you know, as, as well as familiar sensory consciousness, you know, we always talk about consciousness in sensory terms, colours, sounds, smells, but these people think there's also cognitive experience, cognitive consciousness, the, the experience of worrying that climate change is, is irrevocable. They think that's a kind of experience. So when you're sitting there wondering if climate change is irrevocable, you're having a certain kind of cognitive experience and your thought, your having of that thought is constituted by your having this kind of cognitive experience. So which of these views is true, it, you know, makes has dramatic implications for AI, right? So take a way of seeing this, think about Commander Data from Star Trek. So suppose, you know, suppose for the sake of discussion, uh, you can't make something conscious from silicon. Just suppose for the sake of discussion, you need warm, wet, fleshy stuff to get consciousness. So Commander Data is made of silicon. Uh, he's not conscious, but you know, he's a behavioral functional duplicate of a human being. You know, he, he t talks as though he has thoughts, you know, he, you might find him articulating in great detail about the problems of a globalized economy, advocating a Keynesian solution. And, you know, the question is, does Commander Data 
really understand economics? Does he really have opinions on economics? Uh, or is he just parroting words? Is he just a complicated mechanism set up to behave as though he has thoughts? If, if you... Um, if you on the side of the cognitive consciousness people, you're going to say, no, he's not conscious. You need cognitive consciousness to have thought and understanding. He's a faker, you know, he's acting as though he's thoughts, but he doesn't really. Whereas if you're a separatist, if you think thought has nothing to do with consciousness, then you're probably going to think Commander Data does have thought. He's not conscious, but he has, you don't need thoughts to have consciousness. Sorry, you don't need consciousness to have thoughts. And you're probably going to think thoughts are just something to do with complex behavioral functioning. So, you know, this, this, this question is so, so, so little discussed. I think this is another, talking about the, the role, what philosophers have to contribute, pointing out, for example, this question about the relationship between thought and consciousness that is really glossed over and people make assumptions one way or the other without realizing that there's a point of controversy. It, it also just finally has, has implications in general for a theory of consciousness. Because whether you think consciousness is just, if it's just to do with sensory experience or whether you think it's involved in cognition, that's going to make a real difference to which bits of the brain you're looking for for the neural correlates of consciousness. Jesse Prince's very interesting theory of consciousness, for example, is completely dependent on a presupposition that cognitive consciousness doesn't exist. So, so this is a really important topic. I suppose I was obsessed with the problem of consciousness from day one, really, as a philosophy undergraduate at 18. So I tried to find out all I could about the... We, you know, when I was an undergraduate, we were taught that the only two options on consciousness were materialism on the one hand and dualism on the other. And so from day one as an undergraduate philosophy student, I tried to find out everything I could about these two options. I initially decided I was a materialist and defended that with great vigor, but I just slowly came to have this worry about the clash between the purely quantitative language of physical science and the qualities that seem to essentially characterize conscious experience and, and, and the clash there. So actually when I when I finished my undergraduate degree, I, I, I thought the problem was ir irresolvable. I wrote my my uh, third year dissertation on how the problem is ir irresolvable and I went off and did something else. But then, um, I guess while I was doing something else, I tried not to think about consciousness, <laughs> but I uh, came across a paper by Thomas Nagel from the 1970s, Panpsychism, and this was not something I'd learned about as, as an undergraduate. And I hadn't realized there was this middle way option that seems to Sounds a bit crazy, but seems to avoid the deep difficulties facing dualism on the one hand and materialism on the other. And so then I, um, I decided I wanted to do graduate study. I did graduate study with Galen Strawson. There weren't many universities that had a panpsychist professor, but Galen Strawson was one, so uh, in the University of Reading. And, you know, I, that was like 15 years ago, and panpsychism at that point was laughed at insofar as it was thought about at all. But I think, you know, that there has been a big change within academic philosophy, partly due to the rediscovery of these ideas by Russell and Eddington, 
partly because of Giulio Tononi's integrated information theory, which seems to have panpsychist implications. Perhaps the most pressing problem or challenge for panpsychist research program is what's become known as the combination problem. So this is roughly the challenge of how to get from facts about the consciousness of particles to how to get to facts about human or animal consciousness, which is, you know, ultimately what, what we want to explain. And there's, you know, some really interesting proposals about how to make progress on this. So um, Luke Roloffs, for example, who's a uh, research fellow at the University of Bochum in Germany, uh, a lot of, part of his work focuses on whether split brain cases might help to shed light on mental combination. So, you know, so these are patients who've had uh, the corpus callosum in their brain severed. This is the part of the brain that connects up the two hemispheres. This is a rather radical treatment for severe epilepsy. And it results in a kind of really peculiar fragmentation of consciousness. It's, it, it really seems as though these people end up having two conscious minds in one brain. So the interest for panpsychists is that it looks like split brain patients are sort of the inverse of mental combination. So, you know, in mental combination, we're looking for distinct conscious minds coming to, together to make a unified conscious mind. In split brain patients, we've got a single conscious mind fragmenting into multiple conscious minds. So, so Luke Roloff's thought is, well, you know, if we can, if we can get a grip on on what's going on in split brain cases, and as it were, reverse engineer that, then maybe we could get a grip on how to think about mental combination. One other approach is just to postulate basic principles of nature to kind of bridge the gap between facts about particle consciousness and facts about human consciousness. Uh, this is sometimes called emergentist panpsychism. So I think one leading figure here is Hedda Hassel Merck, who's a research fellow at the University of Oslo. And she spent a year in the lab of Giulio Tononi trying to interpret the integrated information theory in a sort of emergentist panpsychist model. So, so you know, the integrated information theory proposes that um, consciousness is correlated with maximal integrated information. So I said, you know, I don't think that's a complete theory of consciousness. It's a claim about correlation. But what Hedda Hassel-Merck does is to interpret that in an emergentist panpsychist framework. Uh, and then what the result is that we basically postulate a basic law of nature that you get consciousness at the level at which there's most integrated information. So, I mean, I, I love the way in that theory we've got the, the philosophical contribution and the neuroscientific contribution coming together to make a complete theory of consciousness. I actually think that's probably the... Her, her view is, I've got a lot of problems with it, I don't quite agree with it, but I think it's perhaps the closest we've got to a complete theory of consciousness. So, so this seems to me really the way forward, having the, the, um, the philosophical framework of Russell Eddington panpsychism, trying to link that with uh, specific concrete neuroscientific theories and, and seeing where we end up. And, you know, it might go nowhere, but, you know, we've got to try things out. So this was on the, um, the sailing ship in the Arctic conference organized by Dmitry Volkov, who's a founder of the Moscow Center for Consciousness, and decided to organize 
dozen philosophers and a uh, dozen graduate students from Moscow University, Moscow State University, to spend a week on a sailing ship in the Arctic. So most, most of the philosophers on board, like uh, Dennett and Humphrey, in some sense, illusionists about consciousness, in some sense think consciousness doesn't really exist. But, um, but they invited David Chalmers along and he thought, look, you know, we need some official op opposition here. So, so David Chalmers, myself, the panpsychist, okay. and Martina Nieder-Rumelin, the duelist. So we saw on board Andy Clark, Patricia Churchland, Paul Churchland, Nick Humphrey. So most of the people on board were hardcore materialists, some even who deny the reality of consciousness. So myself, David Chalmers, and Marta Nida Rumelin were invited along as the onboard opposition. <laughs> so we were the, the anti-materialist views, the dualists and the panpsychist. Um, so we had some really good discussions and um, I managed to persuade Daniel Dennett he was wrong about something, which is one of my proudest philosophical moments. Uh, it's about a quite specific, uh, not about his whole worldview, obviously. Philosophers never change their mind. No, they do, that's not true, actually. Um, but about this quite specific, quite important issue of whether dualism is consistent with conservation of energy. <laughs> so, so I'm not a dualist. I think dualism is problematic for all sorts of reasons. But uh, Dennett and, the and Paul Churchland, actually, have pushed this line that we can rule out dualism on the basis of conservation of energy. So the rough thought is, you know, if there's an immaterial mind impacting on the brain, that's going to add energy to the physical system. And so in violation of the principle that energy is never created or destroyed in a closed system. So, so I don't think this is a problem because, as David Papineau has pointed out, the dualist could just be... So, so dualists like David Chalmers, for example, postulate these basic psychophysical laws of nature. So as, as well as the laws of physics, they think there are these basic psychophysical laws of nature that relate the physical world to consciousness. They could just hold that those laws respect conservation of energy, right? I mean, there, there are current standard model of physics. There are multiple laws of nature that all work together to respect conservation of energy. Why not the, um, why not the, um, the psychophysical laws as well? So I raised this in... Um, Paul Churchin's talk, and I got a very fiery response. One of the Moscow graduate students said, they turned on you like a pack of wolves. But uh, so I had some vigorous debate with uh, Paul Churchland. But then that, that evening, as uh, most people went, went on uh, off deck, off the boat to go on an island, but uh, me and Dennett stayed on board, and he was um, carving a stick on deck. He's very practical, isn't he? And I just kept at this point saying, I'm not saying dualism is plausible. I'm not saying you know, there are all sorts of problems, but this specific problem, it's, it's consistent with conservation of energy. And in the end, he might deny this now, but in the end he said, maybe that's right. What seems to me a hugely underexplored question in the debates on artificial intelligence is the relationship between thought and consciousness. Thought or mental representation more generally and consciousness. I think, you know, I, when I read people writing about AI, some of them seem to assume that thought has nothing to do with consciousness and we can just give an account of thought and mental representation without mentioning consciousness at all. Um, this might be a kind of Andy Clark position. 
Others, maybe on the more sort of John Searle side, think, well, you know, if you don't have consciousness, you don't really have thought. You have something, a complex mechanism that behaves as though it has thought, but it doesn't really have thought. I mean, I think this is really what's going on behind the Chinese room thought experiments. But I think people are clashing without realizing it. And I think what, what is going, what, what I want to say is going on in the background here is, is, a, is a discussion of what is the relationship between thought and consciousness. Is thought a kind of consciousness, a kind of cognitive experience, or is thought just something completely different to consciousness? Um, and in a way, this is a, this is a weird debate to have because so that the debate is is on whether there is such a thing as cognitive consciousness, whether thought is a kind of experience, and you know that that ought to be possible to it ought to be possible to settle that just by reflecting on our own consciousness, you know? We ought to be able to just introspect and see whether there's such a thing as cognitive consciousness. But for some strange reason, when you ask people to do that, 50% of philosophers claim that, yeah, obviously there's this kind of cognitive experience when I'm wondering about whether I've left my keys at home when I'm thinking that thought. That's a kind of experience to kind of wonder about where your keys are is a kind of cognitive experience. Other philosophers, Jesse Prince, for example, say, no, when I introspect, I just see, I just find colors, sound, shapes, that, emotions, that exhausts my consciousness. There's no, none of this cognitive consciousness. I just don't find that at all. So it's hard to know how to settle this issue when it's a debate about consciousness as we immediately experience it.